listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. James chapter 1, and they did a much better job of giving you an overview uh, than I would have done. And so now you understand everything about the book of James. And this morning, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of James chapter 1. So if you would turn in your Bibles there, or we have these uh, James study guides that you can pick up at the Next Steps table um, so that you can just kind of walk along and take notes and, and mark this up um, as we go through uh, this book here in the next few weeks. Um, James is about trials. Um, has anybody here ever experienced trials, or am I just talking to the back wall? Okay, we got a couple of people that have experienced trials that are willing to admit it. The typical response of preaching to trials would, I think, be twofold. Um, number one, uh, we would want to tell you how to get out of trials, right? We would want to give you some keys or steps or insights because most of us intuitively associate bad things happening to us with perhaps bad things that we have done. So when trials come our way, our natural intuitive response is to say, okay, what's wrong? So if I can get what's wrong right, then what's wrong will stop happening. And, and we play into that with our preaching when we're like, let me tell you how to make life better. A second way we approach trials is not only let me tell you how to make uh, life better, but uh, a second way that we approach the issue of trials is this. If, if you will get it right, things will go well for you. If you will get it right, if you'll, if you'll have the right devotional time, if you'll, if you'll have the right value system, if you'll have the right relationship with your wife, if you will work hard at, at work and do well at work, things will go well for you. If things are not going well for you, there's something that you need to tweak or change in your life because we believe um, that we can control outcomes. We are self-determinist essentially in almost every area of our life. James takes a completely different approach. James tells us that trials are going to come, and as you stand in the doorway of walking into trials, you've got some decisions to make right off the bat. And so as he begins teaching, he's talking to people who have experienced trials. That's in verse 1, and the video has covered verse 1, essentially telling us who James is. I want to move right into verse number 2 of James chapter 1, and then I want us to look at uh, what the text is uh, trying to, to get us to understand this morning um, as we study this book together for the next uh, few weeks. Verse 2 of James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers... When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The truth of the matter is the thing we want to receive from the Lord is relief. And James is not talking about that. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And I just want to touch on verse 12. We'll pick up there next week. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Two things I want you to see from the text this morning. Number one, when trials come, verses 1 to 4, when trials come, hang on. When trials come, hang on. Now, what is the text telling us? First of all, the text is saying this. Trials will come to all of us. He doesn't say if you, but he says when you. Trials will come to all of us. Trials are inevitable. And trials, the trials that he's talking about in this text is not a result of sin, not a result of foolishness, but the trials that he's talking about are trials that are brought into our life to bring us to a place of spiritual wholeness. That's the goal. So trials are inevitable. Number two, when trials come, they seem to dominate everything in our lives. That's why we have the word meet there in the text. When you meet, the word meet means to fall into. It means to be surrounded by. I don't know if you've ever been in a pit before. When I was growing up, I had an older brother and an uncle, and I was the youngest one, and they were constantly mistreating me. And my uncle had dug a hole in the ground that was just big enough for a human being to fit in. And one day they took me and turned me upside down and put me in that hole in the ground. I I would almost bet you that I almost died while I was there, but you dare not tell your parents on your older uncle and brother or they will neglect and shun you for the rest of your life. But I want to tell you, when you're in a trial, when you meet trials, it feels like you've fallen into something and all you can see and all you can think about and all that dominates what's going on in your world is the cloud of this trial that is the lens that that you see everything in life through. It's like you're in a pit and there's no way out. James is telling us that. Thirdly, trials come in many different forms. There's not a predictable prescribed pattern. What is a trial? When you define the word here in the text, the trial is an experiment. So we're going to run a trial. A trial could be considered a test. A trial could be considered something that we go through to prove us. I believe in the text is teaching us that it is a test to prove who we are and impact and shape what we are becoming. Trials are designed to subjectively confirm our identity and move us to a place of spiritual wholeness. Trials confirm that we are children of God. Trials confirm how we experience trials confirms our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also does a work in us to make us more like Him. So trials facilitate spiritual wholeness or Christ-likeness. So trials answer these questions for us. Number one, who am I? Number two, how is God transforming me internally? 
That's the point of the trials, is transformation in our internal world. Secondly, how does that impact me externally, practically, relationally, and missionally? This is all in this definition of the trials that we're going through. We want to narrow the focus of what a trial really is. And so when we go through trials, this is what's going on inside of us. But there are four categories of trials that I want you to consider this morning. And we're looking at one category here, but there's the category of general, the general human condition. Every single person that has ever drawn breath is going to go through some form of trials that is just a part of being human beings. Um, You could have tripped over a root outside, and you tripped over the root because you were dragging your foot, and the root just happened to be there. That's not a a trial from God necessarily. There are just things that happen in life. If you have a flat tire, it's probably because you ran over a nail. It may not be a trial from God that you had a flat tire. Right? So there's just a general human condition. Secondly, um, there's a category of trials that are self-induced trials. Uh, there, there, there could be physical conditions that we have based on the things that we eat or the habits that we participate in or don't participate in. A, a lack of exercise or, or too, too much of, of something that could kill us. And there are many things that do that. I think of self-induced suffering every time my wife picks up a knife or a pair of scissors. Because she's cutting something, and I walk up behind her and say something, and she's, she turns around. I was at my daughter's this week, and she's got a pair of scissors that will cut steel. Not really, but it looked like it. And she's got four little kids running around, and just like her mom, she grabs the scissors, and they start cutting. And they don't t- t- take the time to see who's clear. My wife will grab a knife and start to open a box, and she'll grab it and start pulling it. I'm like, don't ever pull. Stop! Don't pull a knife toward yourself. One day she stabbed herself in the stomach with a knife. That's not a trial. Okay? So so understand that's not what James is talking about. What he's talking about in trials are God-sent trials. They are trials that have a specific objective. And then a fourth category of trials is trials for the glory of God. And you can go to John chapter 9 and verse 2. And they're like, why is this man in this condition? He's in that condition so that in this moment, God could be glorified through his healing. So these are the categories of trials. So so trials come in many different forms, but there are these specific trials that James is talking about that the Lord is using to bring about transformation, not only internally, but externally. That's why people get confused about what James is teaching about, because James is dealing with our interior world, but it must manifest itself. Like the video said, wholeness is where there is this connection with who Jesus says he is, who Jesus says I am, what the Spirit is doing in my heart and life, and how that flows out of me in relationship to how I live in this world, particularly in relationship with other people. Fourthly, under point number one, I've got letter D here. When trials come, hang on. Letter D is this. When trials come, stay put. Don't quit. When trials come, stay put. Don't quit. That's what he's telling us. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And he uses this word steadfastness over and over again. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't quit. That you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing, that you may be whole. He says in verse 12, remain steadfast. Let the trial run its course and accomplish its purpose. 
When the weight of life, life's trials crush you, stay under them. Stay under them. Stay there. Let the trials work. Many people have gym memberships. And many people have weights in their homes. Some have gyms in their homes. Some have dumbbells in their homes. Um, most of us enjoy going to or thinking about or maybe even having a membership at the weight room. And we want the body that the weight room would produce. That's why spandex is so popular. Um, please go to the gym. But, but we don't want to suffer. We don't want, want to go through the pain of resistance training. Because when you go to the gym and you start doing resistance training, when it starts hurting or the muscles stop, start burning, when you get to 11 or you get to 12 and then you rest a minute and you go back through 12 reps and, and you can't make it to 12, you make it to 10 and you go back again and you can only make it to 6 and your muscles are just burning. Most of us don't want to go there. We don't want to face resistance. And James is saying that trials are going to come and we need to remain under the weight of those trials and let them strengthen us as we stay there under them. When trials come, stay put, don't quit. When trials come, we develop one of three, I think, response patterns. First of all, we run. Like Forrest Gump. We just run. We escape. We have trials at work. We quit our job. We have trials on our team, whether it's um, Upward Bound or the Atlanta Braves. When we have trials, we, we quit. You hear uh, about what happened to the Beatles. I guess they had some trials and they just quit. That happens all the time in so many venues and, and experiences of life. When trials come, we run. That's why marriage is so difficult. When trials come, we run. That's why parenting is so difficult. When trials come, we run. That's why church is so difficult. Because when trials come, we run. We just quit. I don't need that stress. I don't need that tension. I don't need that pain. I need some new scenery. I don't have to, I don't have to put up with that. When trials come, we run. When stressful times come, we run. We quit. And we never experience what the Lord has for us. If you are in a trial, can I tell you this? It will make you want to quit. When, if, if you were to come up here and I were to take weight and lay it on you, and that weight was, was heavier than your strength could bear, you would probably start breathing heavy and turning red, and your heart would start beating faster, and your blood pressure would go up, and you would say, get this off of me. I need to get out of here. But this is, this is life. When, when trials come, when these trials come to our life, and James is saying what he is saying because he's telling us to stay there. He's using the word steadfast. The word steadfast is, is a Greek word that means remain under. Remain under. Stay under the pressure. Stay in the pain. Stay under the stress. Don't quit. Don't quit. When trials come, response pattern number one is to run. 
Secondly, when trials come, we sin. And I'm, I'm going to deal with this next week, but if you get down to verse number 13, I believe all of these verses are in relation to this theme of how we experience trials. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, but he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What happens in trials? Here's what happens in trials. We come to a place of saying, if God were good, he wouldn't, be let, he wouldn't let me go through something like this. I, I, wouldn't, I say this, I wouldn't let my kids go, go through something like that. My daughter called me Friday night, and she's, she's breathing heavy. And she said, where are you? I'm like, I'm two and a half hours away. But you think I'm around the corner? She said, I just walked out on our porch because they were shooting some fireworks. And she lives up on a hill up in the mountains of North Georgia. And they were shooting off some fireworks. And I went out to look at the fireworks. And there was this huge snake laying on our screened-in porch. And I'm like, all right, I'll be there in 15 minutes, you know. I, I, everything in me wanted to get in the car and find somebody that deals with snakes and let them ride with me and get that snake <laughs> off of her porch because, because I, didn't want her to, I didn't want her to go through that. I didn't want the snake to come in the house. I didn't want the snake to bite the dog. I didn't want the snake to be on the porch. I didn't want the snake to be in the yard. I didn't want the snake to be in Georgia. God, God will... <laughs> Sometimes leave a snake on the porch. I'm not God. God's not like me. God does things different than I do. And there are times that, that I think God ought to think like I think. I think me and him ought to have a conversation, and there's some things that I could maybe help him with sometimes, right? And I say that in jest, but I also say it in reality because we think that when we get frustrated with what God is doing or we get angry or we get rebellious with what God is doing in our lives to make him more like make us more like him and so and so what happens in that is is we begin a thought process this line of thinking that says you know what i've been trying to serve god i've been tithing i've been going to church faithfully I love my wife. I'm faithful to my wife. I love my kids. I read the Bible with them every night. Why am I going through this? What in the world is wrong? And by the way, sin is always crouching at the door and waiting and tempting and enticing. And when we get in trials, we need, we need some hope and some comfort. And I want to tell you that in the midst of trials, Satan will come and offer you some temporary destructive comfort, but it is comfort nonetheless that lures us right into sin. So when trials come, when trials come, we sin. God isn't good. God isn't sufficient. And sin offers a real yet extremely temporary comfort in trials. Has anybody else ever experienced that besides me? Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the natural tendency of trouble is not to sanctify but to induce sin. A man is very apt to become unbelieving under affliction. That is a sin. He is apt to murmur against God under it. That is a sin. He is apt to put forth his hand to some ill way of escaping from his difficulty. And that would be sin. Hence, we are taught to pray. Lead us not into temptation. Because trial has in itself a measure of temptation. And if it were not 
neutralized by abundant grace, it would bear us toward sin. So, so when trials come, I think we want to run. James is bearing that out. When trials come, I think we want to sin. But the text is telling us that when trials come, we need to stay in the trial. We need to sit in the trial. We need to just plan on hanging out in the trial and not put a time limit on the trial and not threaten God in the trial or not say I've reached my limit in the trial, but we need to stay in the trial and our staying power in the trial needs to be a little bit longer than the trial. So when trials come, hang on. Secondly, verses 5 to 11, how do I hang on? He gets very specific. He he goes back to verse number 2 at the beginning of this paragraph here that we've just looked at. And he says, count it all joy. The word count means to consider or to predetermine or to already in my mind rationally decide before anything happens in my thinking where I process... Uh, information in my brain, go ahead and decide you are going to, when trials come, count it all joy. I must see the end of the trial from the beginning and go ahead and determine that while the process may be difficult and debilitating, the outcome is not only worth it, but it is absolutely necessary. When we go through trials, we need to see that our spiritual wholeness It's not only worth it, but it's absolutely necessary. Don't don't miss that. Trials are like expecting a baby. It's a joyful thing right from the start, right? When you get the test and it's positive and and we're going to have a baby... There are tears and there's excitement and then, then reality sets, sets in. And then after all of the expansion and the, the, the process of birthing, um, there, there is in that room all of the turmoil, right? How many of you have ever been in the, in the room where one of your children was born? I'm telling you guys, we need to start a club. This is tough. This is difficult. Being, being in labor and delivery trying to comfort your wife, trying to hold her hand, trying to get her to breathe right. It's, it's taxing. It's, 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 really, it's really a difficult thing. I haven't gotten over it yet after being in there four times. But you think about, you think about that room and what it's like. And I'll try not to be too graphic, but be just quite frankly, completely honest you get in there, they hook you up, and everything's peaceful, and all of a sudden the labor process starts, and when the labor pains get closer and closer and closer, there is tension that just fills the room. And um, when my fourth one was born, the doctor said, you want to come down here and deliver the baby? And I'm like, I'll stay right up here, sir. I'm fine. I don't, I don't, I don't need anything else to create more PTSD in my life than I already have. But the tension and the breathing and the and the... Sometimes the yelling, 
And just all of the experience and all of that turmoil and your wife literally goes to death's door to bring this human being into the world. And then through all of that and and through the last trimester of all of the expansion and growth and and swollen ankles and, and just everything that goes along with it. And then all of a sudden when that child comes into the world, no matter what that mama has been through, they take that baby and they lay it up on the mom's chest and that room is filled with absolute and complete peace everything is just perfect in the world that's what trials are like and we decided in that birth process that this was a good thing at the beginning the wife goes through all of the the changes and all of the transformation and all of the pain And then the trial is over and the baby is born. And and so James is telling us that this is what trials look like. It ends up in this place where there is uh, spiritual wholeness and it is worth it. The outcome of the trial is worth it. It ultimately brings joy. But while we're in it, we can't see it. You know, you go to Lamaze class and they're like, you get a focal point on the ceiling and Try your breathing exercises, and it just doesn't work. And we paid for that class. When you're in the middle of it, you can't see it. It's not even on the radar. So, so we have to decide up front. There has to be a pre-trial, pre-outcome. This, this is the outcome of this is going to be good. No matter what happens, it's going. The outcome is going to be good. And so we decide up front before the pain starts. And, and and there's a good reason for the pain and a good result from the pain. But we decide at that point to count it all joy. Let me move on from this section by just saying one last thing. How do, we, how do we make it through trials? We count it all joy. As I look at this text, I feel so hypocritical in even telling you that. That's great theory. Right? That's just, that's just great theory. That's, that's really good preaching. But more times than not, trials shake me to my core and dominate everything in my life. And I'm not sure if I ever have or ever will. Please don't fire me for saying this. I'm not sure if I ever have or ever will count trials as pure joy. It's just a tough thing. But James is putting us in this place of saying, how do I hang on? I have in some rational place in my mind and in my thinking and in my heart, I have got to believe in the goodness of God. And I want to invite you to join me in trying to get to this place where we can say about trials that they are pure joy. Or I'm going to count this trial as pure joy because of the outcome that God is bringing into my life with spiritual wholeness. Secondly, James tells us to count it all joy. Beginning in verse 5, he says to pray for wisdom. Now, I love this text. It's, it's profound, right? Because, because James is telling us that wisdom is there for the asking. Just ask for wisdom, period. Anyone, under any circumstance, at any time, 
can ask God for wisdom, and God will delight in giving wisdom to us. God is just standing there with, with, with wisdom. Will, will you just ask? Will you, in the midst of your trial, say, I don't understand it. This is driving me crazy. I, I want to run. I, I want to sin. I don't know how I'm going to make it. How am I going to make it through? And I need some clarity in my heart and in my mind that is only going to come from the wisdom of God. And so he says, look, here, here's what you need more than anything else, more than relief, more than your circumstances to level out, and everything be okay. You need wisdom from God. And if you ask God for wisdom, wisdom is already on deposit. Wisdom is waiting to be dispensed. And notice the text. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, without discrimination, without holding anything back, and it will be given to him. You say, well, I'm, I'm in sin today. You know what the text is saying? Ask for wisdom. Right? You may be here and say, and a, 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 you know, a lot of folks equate bad things happening with not tithing. <laughs> You may, be, you, may, you, may not, you may not be a giver today. You may not be generous. I would say pray for wisdom. Now, here's what's going to happen. When you pray for wisdom, you're going to say, okay, thank you for the wisdom, Lord. Now I need to change how I'm handling my resources. Right? Uh, you, 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 may be, you may be having an affair with your secretary. I hope not. I would say pray for wisdom. You say, oh, God's not going to give anybody wisdom. Yeah, God's going to give you wisdom. And you're going to say, this is really dumb. And this is really sinful. And, and God, in the wisdom that he has given me, is showing me that this is not consistent with his plan for me. There may be things going on in your life right now, and you say, I can't pray to God. You can ask God for wisdom. And here's what I want to tell you, that when you get God's wisdom, he's not going to leave you like you were before you had his wisdom. So pray for wisdom. And when we pray for wisdom, God releases and delights in releasing and dispensing wisdom to us. The release, listen, the release and provision of wisdom is, is um, rooted in the character and in the nature and in the heart and in the desire and in the delight of God. And its release is not dependent on anything that we do except for ask and ask in faith. Someone might say, well, if I'm asking in faith, how can I be in sin? I think we're all in sin. Last time I checked, does asking in faith mean asking in perfection? Absolutely not. Asking in faith means that I know that I'm in a situation that I can't make it through on my own, and my thinking isn't going to get me through. My reasoning isn't going to get me through. My, all the chess work that I'm doing in my life isn't going to get me through. I, I need a, a way of thinking and approaching that, it, that is completely outside of myself, and the only place that that is going to come from is God. So I need what God can give. I believe that when I ask God, He is going to give it, and I believe that when I receive it, it is going to give me the strength to make it through this trial to endure to the other side. That's what, that's what asking in faith is. It's not asking in perfection. Three, there are three factors that impact wisdom. Number one, knowledge. Number two, perspective. Number three, 
experience. Three factors that impact wisdom. Number one, knowledge. In other words, while I'm in the midst of a trial, I don't know what's going on. But God does. Right? I don't know what's going on, but God does. And I need what He knows Not necessarily everything that he knows, but I need what he knows about what I'm going through to come and comfort my heart. Not only only knowledge, but secondly, perspective. When I'm in the midst of a trial, my perspective, all I can see in my perspective is just the the, the, the four walls that I'm trapped in. And it all says trial, 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 trial. Everywhere I go, all I can see is trial. But I need a different perspective. And wisdom is going to give me a different perspective. Wisdom is going to give me God's perspective. Thirdly, when I'm in a trial... I need experience beyond my intuition, my knowledge, my experience. I need a God who has been through it all and walked people through it all to come and give me his wisdom. So when I pray for wisdom, God is going to help me understand by giving me his knowledge. He's going to help me understand by giving me his perspective. And he's going to help me understand by me relying on his experience. I need wisdom in the midst of Trials. Wisdom is not some prayer tag. Wisdom is not some prayer option. Wisdom is absolutely essential. God, I need you. I need your knowledge. I need your perspective. I need your experience. Almighty God, give me wisdom. Thirdly, how do we hang on? Thirdly, we need to see the delight of God, not only when we ask for wisdom, but when he grants it. That's what faith is. We not only need to see the the delight of God, not only when we ask for wisdom, He delights in that. God's not standing in heaven, uh, you know, beating Himself in the forehead saying, there goes Mark again. Mark's got himself in a mess again. Mark, Mark wants to quit again. Mark didn't learn anything from the last trial that I put him through. What are you doing? No, I'm not giving you wisdom. You blew it the last time. You wasted the wisdom that I gave you the last time. What are you doing? He's not doing that. That's not his heart. That's not his tone of voice. That's not his countenance. God delights in us in the midst of our trials. He delights when we stop trying to figure it out on our own. And when we immediately call out to him and say, God, give me wisdom. But we've got to see a God who delights not only in us calling upon him for wisdom because he knows, man, I don't, I don't, I want to make it through this trial, but also when he dumps all of that wisdom on us more than we could ever possibly utilize. So I need to see the delight of God, not only when we ask for wisdom, but when he grants it. Fourthly, how do I hang on? I need to understand the beauty and benefit of spiritual wholeness. I need to understand the beauty and benefit of spiritual wholeness. I was created by God. Everything about me biologically, psychologically, physically, everything about me as one that is created in the image of God and created to be in relationship and fellowship with God, everything about me is created to be transformed into this place of spiritual wholeness so that I can love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. This is going to radically transform my relationship with God, which is what I was created for, and it's going to radically transform how I relate to those that are around me. 
And, and, so, and, and so I need to understand the beauty and the benefit of spiritual wholeness. So when I, when I come here, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In other words, in other words there's value to this. Blessed is the man who would have the winning numbers for the drawing Tuesday night. How many of you knew it was Tuesday night? Okay, it's five of us. Right. That's blessing. No, 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 no. This is, this is blessing. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing in the midst of a trial. Not even get me out of the trial. If I won the lottery, I could buy my way out of the trial. Crown of life? What is that? What value does that have? So, 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 so I must understand the beauty and the benefit of spiritual wholeness versus circumstantial happiness. Spiritual wholeness, which is our deepest longing and need, will not come apart from the wisdom of God that enables us to endure the trials of life. Spiritual wholeness will not be ours apart from having the wisdom of God which enables us to endure the trials of life. Fifthly, I need to rely on the resources of God. And, and he gives us this in verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his, his humiliation. Um, it, the lowly brother who's struggling, listen to me, a lowly brother who's struggling could fall into the temptation of victimhood. That puts you in a very large crowd today. There is great Power in being a victim. Great power in being a victim. Our society is just immersed in victimhood. So, so here's a person, and, and they could be like, I'll tell you what, I'm under trials, and, and I'm, I'm poor, and I don't have anything, and woe is me. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. How am I, exalt, how am I exalted? I'm creating the image of God. I'm a child of God. I'm a, I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm grafted into the family of God. I'm adopted. And the rich in his humiliation, the poor is going to be a victim and the, the rich, they're going to try to fix everything with their money. Right? And, and he's, he's like, hey, guys, look, it's, it's, it's not about you being a victim in your poverty and it's not about you being victorious in your prosperity. It's, it's about you recognizing that when you go through trials, you need wisdom and you also need spiritual transformation that is a result of enduring those trials, spiritual wholeness. Therefore, we will not rely on these things that are manipulative like we see so frequently around us, but we will rely on the resources of God. When trials come, I will not take matters into my own hands, but I will rely on the resources of God. And, and then finally, how do we hang on? We need to realize that hanging on is your only viable option that produces the only appropriate outcome. Hanging on in trials is your only viable... In other words, you can't quit. You can't. Quitting is not an option. That's, again, verse, 
Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man who when the weight of a trial is laying down on him and crushing his life and he doesn't know why he just stays there until God finishes the work that he's doing in the midst of the trial. You, you, you can push that weight off or try to. You can run from God. You can fall into sin. But if you're a believer in Christ, that same trial is coming back around. Because the objective is our spiritual wholeness. So that who God is and who He says that I am and what He's done in me is now consistent with how I'm living my life practically, relationally, missionally. Let me, let me conclude. Um, Malcolm Muggeridge said this. He said, contrary to what might be expected... I look back on experiences that at the same time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Let me read that again. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the same time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world Everything that has truly enhanced or enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, he said, if it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo jumbo, the result would not be to make the result would not be to make life delectable but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross, more than anything else, that has called me inexorably to Christ. Why would we, why would we think that trial should not come our way when our very redemption and our only hope has come from the perfect Son of God leaving heaven and going to the cross and dying there and bearing our sin. All that he went through is a picture of how God works to bring redemption and ultimately brings redemption through his Son, Jesus Christ, for us as sinners. Jesus rose victorious over it. Why would we look at suffering any different than to believe that God is using that to transform us from who we are by the power of the Spirit that lives in us into what He wants to be to a place of spiritual wholeness? Just, just five bullet points, one-liners. Don't go looking for trials, but when they come, don't look for an easy way out. Don't go looking for trials, but when they come, don't go looking for an easy way out. Secondly, there is no other way for you to experience His fullness or yours apart from painful, powerful, debilitating trials. There is no other way by God's design for you to experience His fullness except to go through trials. Thirdly, Resources are available to make it through. Resources will not get you out of it. Resources will take you through it. That resource is wisdom if we will only ask for it. Number four, 
You can have everything and be spiritually bankrupt. And deep within your soul, you will be miserable. And nothing can cure that. No possession or status or accomplishment can cure that. You can have nothing and go through life-crushing trials, experience spiritual wholeness, and have a transcending joy that can only be explained by the power of the gospel. And listen to me. The propulsion of the gospel goes forth through vessels that have been transformed by trials. And their lives bear evidence of a supernatural power working within them as opposed to the lies of the prosperity gospel. That would say the gospel goes forth when you've got a license plate on your car that says too blessed to be stressed, right? I'm on top of the world. I'm good. God's good. All is well. That's a lie. The gospel doesn't go forth as a result of our prosperity. The gospel goes forth as a result of us staying under trials and letting God do his work in transforming our heart and bringing us to a place of spiritual wholeness so that now the gospel that we proclaim makes more sense than ever coming from that voice, from that person from that heart that's been through trials. So James gives us clear instruction. If you're here today and you're not a believer after that message, you probably don't want to be. But we aren't lying to you here. We're we're offering you something that's real and durable and tangible and eternal. And I would invite you to come to Christ today. I would invite you to believe the gospel. I would invite you to trust Jesus. Because with him, he transforms us internally and he transforms how we live externally. And that is the, that is the, the gnawing pain and desire deep within our soul. If you are a believer, could, could I ask you this morning to examine how you're facing trials and I'll examine myself with you in that? You probably are in some trial right now or you're going to be going into some trial. And I hope that you would turn to James chapter 1. And I hope that whatever trial you're going through right now, that you wouldn't use worldly wisdom, but you would use heavenly wisdom. We get wrapped up in in our worldly wisdom and our worldly way of dealing with problems like driving the Raven Gap to get the snake off the porch, Right? We try to figure it out ourselves when the truth of the matter is James has given us everything we need. And if you don't take anything away from what I've said today, would you please start crying out to God for wisdom? Would you please start crying out to God for wisdom? Would you ask him for wisdom and how to relate to your wife? Would you ask him for wisdom and how to relate to your children? Would you ask him for wisdom and how to relate to all of the things that, it, that have happened in your life? that seem to be just this weight that you constantly pick up every morning and walk out the door with, and it just speaks to you all day long. And it came as some form of a trial, and the accuser has a megaphone going off in your ear, 
And you believe the lie of Satan as opposed to believing the goodness of God. Would you ask God for wisdom to say, Lord, this is going on inside of me. How do I deal with this? And his wisdom will take you through that. But if you don't get anything today, every time something comes up in your life, every time something comes up in your relationships, every time something comes up from your past, you say, Lord, give me wisdom. Every time you get mad at somebody, every time there's a schism, every time there's friction, would you say, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom. We pause every week to, rem- to remember Jesus. Uh, it's, it's not a ritual. Um, this is not going to keep your car from breaking down. It's not going to make your, your kids better. It's us saying in all of the busyness of our life, all of the complexity of the world, all of the pain that courses through us and the trials that we face, it's us saying this is my anchor. It's us saying the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important, most important thing in my life, and this is what I rely on. This is where my hope is. My hope is in the finished work of Christ. So when you come, you're not, you're not coming to get a taste of grape juice or a, a dull wafer or a piece of bread that was on the sale rack at Ingalls. You're coming for something to happen in your brain. You're coming to remember the Lord. You're coming to remember what he's done. And you're coming to remember who you are. And you're coming to remember that he is working in your heart and life, even now, to conform you to his image. And that is going to result in you loving him and you loving others. So I encourage you to come today. Um, If you've never been here before during communion, we um, gather as families or gather as life groups. Or we, some go back and sit down in their chair. Whatever it is that you would like to do this morning, uh, I encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray and then stand to your feet and come. And let's remember the Lord this morning. Let's remember the gospel this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for uh, James. We thank you for these dispersed Jews. Uh, we, um, we thank you that this man who had a uh, had people who were waiting to kill him just standing at his door a man who was martyred a man who was a, a leader in a persecuted church a man who prayed so much that tradition tells us he was called camel knees We thank you for him. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for looking down through the, the, the corridors of time and seeing us sitting here today in Locust Grove, Georgia, knowing that many of us have been in trials and, and ran. Many of us have been in trials and sinned. I pray you would help us today, Lord. When the weight comes, I pray we would just cry out for wisdom. I pray we would just cry out for strength. And I pray for those that may not know you, that have never believed the gospel, I pray they would believe this morning. I pray that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they would 
enter into this process of growing in spiritual wholeness. Pray you would mature this body of believers in spiritual wholeness. And I pray you would let us not only experience that beauty, but I pray that you would let us experience the joy of manifesting that to the world around us so that they can see the beauty of Jesus Christ in his body here on earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.